The baby bat screamed out in fright, turn on the dark, I'm afraid of the light. (laughs) That's Shel Silverstein. The baby bat screamed out in fright, turn on the dark, I'm afraid of the light. It's fun for me to hear that common human fear inverted through the perspective of a fellow mammal. You see, I'm not afraid of the light. It's the dark that scares me. In the dark, I can't see what's around me. I feel uncomfortable, vulnerable, made to be uncertain, even of the things I know are there, suddenly fearful of things that I should be fairly confident are not there. And so it is that darkness gets something of a bad rap altogether. It comes to take on the weight of all that is threatening. I am not only wary of what may be lurking in the darkness, darkness itself becomes the thing I fear. And that shows up in the way we use the word in other contexts. For instance, one does not generally look forward to dark days ahead. If something takes a dark turn, one doesn't expect a good ending. If I tell you I have a dark vision, you probably won't expect inspiration. And our urge to escape the darkness shows up in how we structure our lives, in the ways we have built civilizations. Verlin Klinkenborg writes that while the phrase light pollution would have made no sense for most of human history, now most of humanity lives under intersecting domes of reflected, refracted light, of scattering rays from overlit cities and suburbs, from light-flooded highways and factories. In most cities, the sky looks as though it has been emptied of stars, leaving behind a vacant haze that mirrors our fear of the dark, and resembles the urban glow of dystopian science fiction. You don't have to guess how Klinkenborg feels about this. But I think he raises a valid question. What have we lost in attempting to banish the darkness from our lives? We've engineered the night to receive us by filling it with light, he says. This kind of engineering is no different than damming a river. Its benefits come with consequences. A book entitled Lights Out, Sleep, Sugar, and Survival points out some of the practical consequences. Its premise is that the artificial extension of daylight with electricity has put us dangerously out of sync with nature. Whereas humans used to spend the summers sleeping less and eating more as light triggers a hunger for carbohydrates in preparation for winter when we would eat less and sleep more, Artificial light allows us to stay up past our natural bedtimes, as it were, and indulge in those carbohydrate goodies, especially sugars and refined carbohydrates, the whole year through. We then seek to address the ensuing weight gain and health problems with diet and exercise, whereas if we simply matched our sleep patterns with the seasons and the availability of natural light, we would automatically be healthier, they say. While it is hard to imagine going to sleep at 6 p.m., 
and I confess to being a fan of nocturnal carbohydrate goodies, this seems like a legitimate argument. And further, I think there may be more, less tangible hazards of trying to escape the darkness. Or put another way, less tangible but no less important benefits available to us in letting go of our fear of the dark, in reacquainting ourselves with darkness. Darkness soothes my weary eyes that I may see more clearly. Shelley Jackson Denham wrote in the hymn we sang this morning, Darkness soothes my weary eyes that I may see more clearly. As I am often needlessly afraid in the dark, I can be, in turn, overly confident in the light. Because I can see things, I sometimes fool myself into believing that I understand things. If I see it, I can grasp it. If I see it in the light, I will know what it truly is. Seeing is believing, we say, or used to say. But that is a phrase that is becoming almost hopelessly quaint. If we imagined the instantaneous distribution of live streaming videos and images would somehow put us all on the same page with a single agreed upon story of what we see, we are now finding that human understanding is just a bit more mysterious than that. Believing is seeing might come closer to the mark, but I don't think even that rather cynical inversion of the phrase captures it. It may be that we humans have simply been blinded by the light. So many of us can light up a room at the flip of a switch, but we should not confuse that easy illumination with enlightenment. We need darkness. Light and dark are parts of the natural order. We need not only to see, but to reflect, to rest, to restore, even to feel the fear and uncertainty that darkness brings. And to remember that there are things that one can only see in the dark. Ralph Waldo Emerson was concerned that people not take the glorious sight of a starry night for granted. So he imagined this. If the stars should appear one night in a thousand years, how would men believe and adore and preserve for many generations the remembrance of the city of God which had been shown? Isaac Asimov built one of his most famous science fiction stories around this premise and called it Nightfall. It was published in 1941. In it, he writes of a planet with six stars, six suns, which keep the planet illuminated at all times so that the inhabitants never experience darkness and thus have never seen the stars in the night sky. Scientists exploring their stellar system find out that the planet will experience darkness, however, as one of the suns experiences an eclipse every 2,049 years when it is the sole light in the sky, resulting in a brief night. That doesn't sound like a 
tragedy, does it? But to a civilization that has never experienced nightfall, it rocks the very foundations of their society. Scientists and psychologists rush to prepare people for the experience of darkness. Religions predict a cataclysmic end to the world with the coming of darkness. No one can fully accept the experience that awaits them, described in a wonderfully melodramatic prose of the golden age of science fiction. With the slow fascination of fear, he lifted himself on one arm and turned his eyes toward the blood-curdling blackness of the window. Through it shone the stars. 30,000 mighty suns shone down in a soul-searing splendor that was more frighteningly cold in its awful indifference than the bitter wind that shivered across the cold, horribly bleak world. Go in peace. (laughs) Grips you, though. Doesn't it make you want to read the story? Both Emerson and Asimov imagined natural forces that hid the stars for millennia and posited two very different reactions when the stars were finally revealed. But neither imagined that humans would willingly hide the stars from sight. And that's where Klinkenborg steps in with his description. We've grown so used to a pervasive orange haze of electric light that the original glory of an unlit night is wholly beyond our experience, beyond memory almost. And yet above the city's pale ceiling lies the rest of the universe, utterly undiminished by the light we waste, a bright shoal of stars and planets and galaxies shining in seemingly infinite darkness. I love that line, above the city's pale ceiling lies the rest of the universe. My response, standing under a night sky with the panorama of stars overhead, is some combination of that described by Emerson and Asimov. I am gratefully astounded by the awesome beauty of it, which extends so far beyond the infinitesimally small concerns of my personal existence. And I am profoundly shaken by the awesome beauty of it, which extends so far beyond the infinitesimally small concerns of my personal existence. I feel grateful. And I feel some amount of fear. Above the pale ceiling of what I daily consider to be my life, above the pale ceiling of the handful of things over which I have some control, those things of which I have some small understanding, lies the rest of the universe. That is the truth that glows in the dark. That is glorious. That is scary. That is humbling in a profoundly meaningful way. And if I can get beyond my fear, there are gifts to be had. It, however you choose to define it, is decidedly not all about me. However, I am part of all that is. I am not in control, but I am connected. 
I need to guard against being blinded by the light, remembering that light only occurs against an overwhelming darkness that pervades the universe, just as we heard in the story. Fantasy author Terry Pratchett wrote, Light thinks it travels faster than anything, but it is wrong. No matter how fast light travels, it finds the darkness has always got there first (laughs) and is waiting for it. Writer, educator, and naturalist Chet Ramo writes in a similar vein, I have a friend who speaks of knowledge as an island in a sea of mystery. Let this then be the ground of my faith. All that we know now and forever, all scientific knowledge that we have of this world or ever will have is as an island in the sea. Still, the mystery surrounds us. We seek to learn all we can know, yes, while never losing touch with the mystery that extends beyond all learning. We seek to shed light where we can. With joy, we claim the growing light, yes, while never losing touch with the seemingly infinite darkness that holds stars and planets and galaxies and wonders beyond our imagining. While much can be discovered in the light of day, there are yet some things that can only be revealed in the dark of night. While we are encouraged by finding answers to our questions, we can also find comfort by relaxing into mystery. When my heart with sorrow cries, comfort and caress me. Darkness, when my fears arise, let your peace flow through me. And I do not mean to gloss over the sorrow and fear and pain that arise in life. Facing what we call dark times is not easy. Often the night holds not comfort, but worry and loneliness and suffering. And just as our culture has tended to want to banish the darkness with electric light, we are sometimes made to think we can escape these feelings rather than experience them. Now, am I saying that suffering is necessary To nurture spiritual growth? No, it is not up to me to say that, nor would I say that if it was up to me. I am only saying that as far as I can see, suffering is inevitable. And that to the extent I try to escape my feelings around it because of my fear, I am but creating a pale ceiling of light which will not keep out the darkness. I need not go looking for sorrow, but to the extent that I try to escape it, I am cutting myself off from the fullness of this mysterious existence. I am cutting myself off from connection to what Helen Keller called the largest company in all the world, the company of those who have known suffering. And sometimes our sorrow, our pain, our depression, these are all telling us something about our lives. Author and journalist Johan Hari writes in his book on depression, Lost Connections. Everyone knows you have physical needs like air, water, and food, but there is equally strong evidence that we have psychological needs like belonging, 
having a sense of a future that makes sense, feeling valued, feeling that we are good at something, feeling loved and connected and safe. As a culture, we have become less good at meeting these needs. What if, he asked, rather than trying to immediately rid ourselves of the depression, we listen to what it might be telling us about what we need? Most notably, the need for connection. Our mission is to deepen connections. So I took a walk in the night on Friday. Thought I should do some research. Just a short walk around Emerson Park, but there are many stretches with no street lights, and I was reminded by a couple stumbles to not take a level terrain for granted. And I remembered fragments of childhood excursions into the night and felt twinges of the fear and the excitement and the way the other senses are heightened when sight is hampered. And I felt a little lost and alone in the darkest spots. And I felt tiny as I looked up at the sky. But the stars, the stars were so beautiful. 